Hello, everyone. This is Volts for February 11th, 2022. Volts podcast, Rebecca Dell on decarbonizing heavy industry. I'm your host, David Roberts. For most of the carbon-intensive sectors of the economy, electricity, transportation, buildings, we have a pretty good sense of how to eliminate carbon emissions. None of those sectors will be easy to decarbonize. Everyone is an enormous practical challenge, but in each case, the basic path to zero is clear, and it mostly involves switching out fossil-fueled machines with machines that generate or run on clean electricity. Then there's that other wedge on the pie chart, the one that gets less attention, industry. Manufacturing, mining, construction, and waste processing are responsible for about a third of global carbon emissions and about a quarter of U.S. emissions. The path to zero emissions in heavy industry is much murkier than it is for other sectors. Low-carbon alternatives are early in development and commercialization, In some cases, there are no alternatives except to capture and bury the carbon when it's emitted. In future pods, I might get deeper into some specific industries like steel. But for this one, I wanted to attempt a broad overview. What you need to know about decarbonizing industry. Nobody knows the sector and its challenges better than Rebecca Dell, who runs the industry program at the ClimateWorks Foundation. Dell previously worked at the Department of Energy, where she helped coordinate Obama's Climate Action Plan, and before that was a research scientist at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. She's a researcher, author, and as more attention turns to industry, an increasingly frequent podcast guest. She was on Canary's Catalyst Pod just last month. It takes a while. Okay, almost two hours, but Dell and I managed to cover all the big industrial sectors, why they emit so much, prospects for reducing their emissions, and the policies that could make that happen. If you're looking for a one-stop shopping primer on industry and climate, this is for you. Without further ado, Rebecca Dell, welcome to Volts. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I'm excited for this, and also it might be a little crazy. Uh, we are going to attempt here to cover a lot of ground. Basically, I want to try to give a 30,000-foot sort of overview of industry and decarbonization. Uh, obviously, any of these subtopics could be podcasts of their own, and maybe someday will, but we're going to start by trying to sort of go wide here. So if this is a total disaster, I'm just telling listeners up front, it's my fault and not Rebecca's. So Rebecca, I think in the Volts audience, people are probably basically familiar with the famous Energy Information Administration pie chart of U.S. greenhouse gases, where they come from. You got your big wedge called transportation, which I think people mostly have their heads around how, how to decarbonize that. Although, you know, planes and big trucks remain a problem. Then there's electricity. I think people more or less have their minds wrapped around how to decarbonize that. Sometimes you get a little buildings wedge. Sometimes you get a little agricultural wedge. I think people more or less understand those. And then there's that big wedge that just says industry. 
And my sense is, and perhaps I'm projecting from my own experience, that to a lot of people, that is a bit of a black box. Not super clear what's in it or how to approach decarbonizing it. And and my sense is that historically, that has been kind of the neglected stepchild of the decarbonization conversation. But am I right in saying that attention on that little wedge has rapidly increased in recent years. Yeah, and I think for people who um, work on this area, it's been really exciting to see how much new interest has come just in the last year or two. Do you have an explanation for why? I think the phenomenon that is more in need of explanation is why so few people were looking (laughs) at this area until the last year or so, considering that the industrial sector globally, under the most parsimonious accounting of greenhouse gas emissions, is responsible for a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions. And under a broader definition, it's responsible for more than a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. And is that just a side question, roughly echo the U.S. pie chart? Or is the U.S. different because we have sort of deindustrialized a little bit? The U.S. is a little lower in terms of the portion of our emissions that come from the industrial sector. But if you add back in the greenhouse gas emissions that come from manufacturing products in other countries that will be consumed in the United States, so you can think of those as like our imported emissions, then you get back to something pretty close to the global average. Right. So let's say a rough rule of thumb about a third. That's a lot of emissions to neglect for this long. So uh, let's take a look at them. When we say industry, what do we mean by that? What puts that, uh, what includes something in that category? What are the sort of boundaries of that category? And, And what are the big, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, sort of the top line items? Yeah, that's a really important question because when we talk about industry in the climate community, This is like a piece of stealth jargon. It's the worst (laughs) kind of jargon. It's a word that sounds like a normal word, but it actually is a jargon word. Mm -hmm. So basically what we're talking about when we talk about industry is everything that's not agriculture or energy, Mm -hmm. which is to say it's the material economy. It's mining, manufacturing, construction, waste processing. It's physical stuff as opposed to energy. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And there's a lot. There's, As you might imagine, there are a lot of fields of human endeavor that are uh, included in that very broad set of activities. It's a very heterogeneous sector. Yes, very heterogeneous, I, I assume, economically in terms of practice, but in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, I assume we have a couple of standouts. Well, this is actually like kind of an insane fact about the industrial sector which is that for all of the you know, thousands and millions of different types of activities that are included in the industrial sector, there's an astonishingly short list that are responsible for the overwhelming majority of the greenhouse gas emissions. That's very useful, useful for our podcast purposes. It is. It allows one to simplify one's focus very considerably. Mm. And so there's three real standouts here, steel, cement, and commodity chemicals. So the chemical industry itself is 
Again, they produce a lot of different products, very varied and heterogeneous. But when we talk about commodity chemicals, there's like 10 chemicals that are basically the precursors for two products, plastic and fertilizer, that dominate those emissions. So you can kind of think of this in four product categories, cement, steel, plastic, fertilizer, and just making those materials is responsible for two-thirds of all the greenhouse gas emissions from the entire industrial sector. Oh, wow. And um, insofar as you figure out how to decarbonize those, will those lessons be transferable down to all those many varied other applications, or are they so heterogeneous that you kind of got to do them one by one? Well, so the sources of greenhouse gas emissions are different in other areas, So for example, like in the waste processing area, a lot of that is what's called landfill gas. So anaerobic digestion of poorly sorted solid waste trash uh, leads to methane emissions. So that's kind of its own thing. That goes in the other category. That's in the one third that's not accounted for. But a lot of it is manufacturing. It's from lighter manufacturing activities. So we're talking about lower temperature processes, Mm -hmm electric drive processes, you know, cooling, motors, that sort of thing. And so a lot of that will be taken care of as the grid gets cleaner and as things that are relatively easy to electrify become more electrified. Yes, this brings up a question. So if tomorrow, by magic, uh, all electricity became clean, how much of that (laughs) one-third of emissions would vanish? That's pretty much the difference between the one-quarter and the one-third numbers that I cited. Got it. So the one quarter, the sort of more parsimonious definition is like we are only looking at greenhouse gases that are coming out of smokestacks at factories at what are called direct emissions. Right. That's about a quarter. If you add in the greenhouse gas emissions from generating electricity that is consumed at industrial facilities, that gets you from a quarter up to over a third. Okay. So in terms of that quarter, this is also a little bit of a side question, but it's always stuck in my head ever since I heard it from Saul Griffith. In terms of that quarter, how much of industry is devoted to fossil fuels themselves? In other words, mining, drilling, processing, transporting, refining, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we shift away from fossil fuels over time, how much of a chunk does that take out of the industry pie? None. Ouch. So... (laughs) The numbers I cited to you, the the quarter and the third, those are global numbers. Here in the United States, we have a very unusual convention of including the fossil fuel extraction industries as industrial activities. In the whole rest of the world, when people are doing their greenhouse gas inventories, they don't count that as an industrial activity. They count that as an energy transformation activity. So Ah. they lump those emissions in with power generation. Oh, interesting. And so if you look at that pie chart from EIA or EPA for just U.S., if you look Mm -hmm. at a strictly U.S. source, that will include your refining and fossil fuel extraction emissions, Mm -hmm. but global numbers don't include any. Interesting. Well, that seems like a seems like a complication in comparing across across countries, doesn't it? It's kind of a big chunk to, to have uh, misfiled in one place or the other. Yeah, but we're America and we like to do things our way. <laughs> how many inches, how many inches of industry? Um, 
Let's just look at those four real quick then. Run through them real quick. Um, steel. Why does making steel produce so much greenhouse gases? And what are the, like, I hear good things about steel all the time. Steel, I guess, has become just in the last, I don't know, maybe like the last year, it seems like a bit of a like leader in this category, like this sort of cheerleader, like this can, we can do this. Green steel is, you know, moving ahead faster than people thought. So what is the traditional steel making process? And what do we mean when we say green steel? So before I answer that question, I think there's like a big overarching answer to your question that applies across all of these commodity areas. Sure. So why are these kind of primary commodity industries, why do they dominate greenhouse gas emissions? For two reasons. One, because we make them in larger quantities than we make anything else. Right. These are the materials that we make other things out of. And so we make steel and cement in increments of billions of tons per year. We make commodity chemicals in increments of hundreds of millions of tons per year. These are the only products that we make in those volumes. And so, of course, these are the products that have the biggest greenhouse gas impact. And then there's a second reason that comes after that, which is that basically all of these industries are a variation on the following theme which is you dig something out of the ground and then the first thing that you do with it that transforms a raw material into a useful molecule, that's what all of these industries are. They're that first transformation of a raw material into a useful molecule. Everything that's downstream of that in your supply chain, that's just arranging your useful molecules in different combinations and sizes and ratios. Mm -hmm. But all of that rearranging takes a lot less energy, emits a lot less greenhouse gas than making the useful molecule in the first place. Right. So it's the processing of raw materials into useful industrial materials. Yeah. That is the sort of locus here of greenhouse gases. Yeah. So all of these industries are what we call primary commodity processing industries. And in fact, if, you know, the big three that we talked about, steel, cement, chemicals, um, highest emitting industries four through seven or eight are also primary commodity processing industries. <laughs> They're just smaller ones. They're things like aluminum. Got it. I see a theme here. So we have a... Yeah. So why are steel emissions so big? Mostly because we make 2 billion tons of it per year. <laughs> like that is a lot of steel. That's the best part of a thousand pounds of steel per person for every human being on earth, for you, your brother, your wife, your grandma, your grandchild, babies, everybody, you know, we're making the best part of a thousand pounds of steel per person per year. That's wild. It is wild. And it sounds insane until <laughs> you look at, you know, a suspension bridge or a runway or mm anything in our built environment. And then you you sort of have to think like, oh yeah, I guess we do use an incredibly large amount of steel. We make everything out of it. What is the raw material then? And what is the processing uh, uh, that sends off so much GHGs? Yeah. So with steel, we start with iron ore. Iron ore is iron oxide. So it's uh, iron atoms chemically bonded to oxygen atoms. Mm -hmm. 
your audience may be more familiar with iron oxide by its common name, which is rust. Everybody knows that rust does not have the valuable material properties that steel has. And so basically what we're doing when we make steel is we are turning that iron oxide, we're stripping off all those oxygen atoms, and we're just turning it into metallic iron with a little bit of other elements mixed in to improve its properties. But uh, steel is almost all iron by weight. Ah. Yeah, and so in order to do that chemical reaction, the main way we do it today is that we use coal, and the coal, we, we combine the iron ore and the coal together in a reactor called a blast furnace. Is this coking coal? Is that... It is coking coal. Right. It's a special denser kind of coal, right? Yeah. Uh, so we this is what we use metallurgical coal for, right. which is also called coking coal. And so it's like a, it's a special kind of coal, but it's basically, it's, I mean, it's still coal. It's, it's a lump of carbon. <laughs> right. um, and so in the blast furnace, part of the coal gets burned just for thermal energy to help the reaction go faster. And then the other part of it, basically all those carbon atoms uh, are a more attractive place for the oxygen atoms to go. So the oxygen atoms move from our iron oxide over to the carbon and we get carbon dioxide. And so we're getting CO2 from two different uh, sources. And this is another theme that we'll see throughout the industrial sector is that, so you have the energy emissions. So that's just the coal that you burn to get your reactor hot to make the chemical reaction go. But then you also have a set of chemical reactions that are going on in there that are not combustion reactions. They're a different kind of chemical reaction that's also producing greenhouse gases. Those are process emissions, right? Is that what those are called? Yeah, that's what we call process emissions. Basically, process emissions are any greenhouse gas emission that comes from doing anything except combustion. <laughs> right. And so, uh, I mean, this might be skipping ahead a little bit, but my sort of intuition tells me that energy emissions are going to be the easier ones to eliminate because we have alternative sources of, of energy <laughs> that don't emit greenhouse gases. Is that accurate? In many cases, yeah. So... What is green steel then? How do you, uh, presumably you need something to pull the oxygen off the iron um, and you need it to be hot for that to happen. What is, what is the green steel process look like? Sure. It's a couple of things, but maybe it would be useful at this point to give kind of like a typology of solutions that sure. applies across industries. Yeah. So there's like a few, there's a small number of buckets of decarbonization pathways that we can use across all of these industries. So bucket number one is material efficiency. We can just use less of this material in order to still, you know, in order to make the products and deliver the services that we want. I was going to ask about that later, but that's traditionally, that's the cheapest, right? I mean, that's almost always the cheapest. It's just like changing your behavior, changing your processes, changing design. Yeah, that's a big one. And the barriers there are typically not technical. Right. They're barriers that have to do with incentives and social systems and cultural norms and things like that. Right. So, but like, that's very important and we should definitely do it. <laughs> um, so bucket number one, material efficiency. Bucket number two, carbon capture and storage. You keep doing pretty much what you're doing now, but you figure out a way to collect all the CO2 and put it underground. Bucket number three, I know I hear the sigh that you want to make. <laughs> you don't have to like it. 
but you have to acknowledge that it exists and is a possibility. Well, I actually had a more specific question about it, which is that I'm very familiar with capturing CO2 off of combustion. That's sort of the standard CCS model. Is capturing the CO2 off of process emissions notably different or more difficult? So there's like a dumb version of carbon capture where you just like take the, you know, your flue gases at the end of the pipe right. and you put them through some scrubbers and then you put them through some amine sorbents and you can do that on any flue gas. So that's like, you could imagine doing that on the end of almost any pipe, but each industry has its own version of what would smarter carbon capture that is like engineered to optimize for this industrial process. That varies a lot. Got it. So material efficiency, carbon capture and storage. Next bucket is uh, hydrogen. Mm -hmm. As uh, your recent guest, Panama Bartholomew said, it is the answer to every question <laughs> in energy before it has even been asked. <laughs> True. Um, so bucket number four is direct electrification. Bucket number five is bioenergy. So those are your five buckets across all of these industries. Is there significance to the order you put them in? No. Well, I suppose I put bioenergy last because we just don't have enough biomass that is available sustainably right. to supply these industries. And so it is like bioenergy it cannot ever be more than a small part of the solution because we just, like I said, there's just not enough. There's no way to provide enough biomass to do a large portion of the decarbonization in these industries. So the IEA estimates that our current total biomass available for energy use on Earth is something like 55 or 60 exajoules of energy worth of biomass. The chemical industry today uses almost 50 exajoules of energy. <sighs> the steel industry uses another 30 exajoules of energy. Yes. And then you've got biofuels also being claimed by, you know, electricity and residential heating and planes. And yeah. like there's a there's lot of just different... not enough to go around. And so I put biomass or I put bioenergy last because like, yeah, we might use it. It might show up here or there, but it can't be the bulk solution because there's just like there just aren't enough jewels there. Right. So obviously I have my favorites <laughs> of your buckets. <laughs> I have sure. some favorites and some less favorites. But um, so with those buckets in mind, let's go through steel and cement. Yeah. I mean, we could use less steel. We could substitute wood for steel. I, I, there are several people on Twitter who will yell at me if I don't at least mention that. Like, you can use um, wood for structural stuff in buildings now. So I think uh, we can all imagine... Go back to driving Studebakers. <laughs> yeah, we could make cars out of carbon fiber. Carbon fiber is like the the analog to hydrogen in the, in the material space. It's the answer to every question. But so I can imagine using less steel... I can imagine sticking a carbon capture facility on the end of the, the pipe, but what does smart carbon capture look like in steel then? Sure. So just one, um, I will get to that, but one point on using less steel. In the United States and in other high-income countries, we already use less steel. So as countries get richer, their demand for steel tends to tail off. And the reason for that is that as you become a middle-income country, 
that's when you build out an electric transmission and distribution system that actually gets to every house. That's when you move your entire population into modern housing. That's when people start having private vehicles for the first time in significant numbers. That's when you build sanitation systems and aqueducts that bring clean water and public health to people. Right. And once you've done that, then your demand for steel is largely a function of population growth and replacing things as they wear out. And so we in high-income countries might have a lot of opportunities to reduce our demand for steel in order to be more material efficient in our use of steel. Mm-hmm. But there's, a, there's this huge latent demand for more steel that is represented by the like couple billion people on earth who are still in poverty and who have an entirely legitimate desire to have modern housing and sanitation and all of those things. Very, a very familiar story in energy as well. So you're back to the leapfrog stuff, right? Like yeah. how to do it in the first place without so much steel. Absolutely. And so the other thing about steel, though, is that it's quite recyclable. So as you have a lot of stuff for a long time, you develop a stock of steel that you can then use, you can then, you can then recycle. And so if current trends continue... All of the additional demand for steel that's going to come from countries emerging out of poverty, that can probably be met with recycled steel. Mm. And so the, but, so the current volume of steel, of new steel production, steel from iron ore, mm. probably doesn't have to go up in order to continue to meet global needs. That would require... But it probably doesn't have to go down either. <laughs> Right. I bet are we on a are we currently on a trajectory to hold it steady or do we need to like do a bunch of stuff to make it? Yeah, that no, happen? that's like just straight current trends continue. Right, right, right. But I don't think I've actually said out loud yet in this interview how much greenhouse gases are emitted by the global steel industry. It's three and a half billion tons of CO2 equivalent per year. <laughs> that's so much. It's more greenhouse gases than are emitted by any entire nation except the United States and China. And so even if we're just holding current production constant, that's still an enormous problem to solve. Right. And by the same token, if you reduce it even by a small fraction, you're reducing a lot of tons. Yeah. So back to your question. Frankly, there's just like not a lot of interest in steel CCS around the world right now. And so I'm happy to kind of explain how it might work, why it would be hard, that kind of thing. My attitude toward it is don't do it unless you have to. So if you're telling me you don't have to, like, I'm happy to put it out of my mind. I think we can just confidently walk past. It's not something that anyone would choose as a first option, right? I mean, almost everywhere it exists, it's because you can't figure out a better way to do it yet. So So let's move on to hydrogen. Yeah, yeah. So hydrogen is where a lot of the excitement in the steel industry is right now. And in my mind, the best argument for hydrogen is that making steel using hydrogen is the smallest increment of technology that we need Mm. to get to zero greenhouse gas steel. Can you just substitute hydrogen into existing uh, like refining processes or there's more to it than that? No. So uh, more than 90% of the pri- what we call primary steel, so steel that's made from iron ore, that's not it's not steel that's recycled. 
So more than 90% of primary steel today is made with a blast furnace using coal. And like 7% is made with an alternative process that's called direct reduction that uses gas. It uses methane instead of coal. Mm-hmm. So the blast furnace, there's not a lot you can do about that on the hydrogen front. But this alternative process, direct reduction, actually, we think that the hydrogen process might be quite similar to that, use quite similar equipment, and you know, basically, we don't have to start from zero. And this direct reduction process, it's only 7% of global production, but like seven, that's still a lot. That still makes this like a fully commercial, mature technology. You can just call up the Midrex Corporation and be like, hello, I would like to buy a shaft furnace, and they will make you one. And so basically what we, you know, on the hydrogen front, mostly what we're talking about is re-engineering this existing technology of the shaft furnace to use only hydrogen instead of what it currently uses, which is a mixture of hydrogen and carbon monoxide. Got it. That's 7%, not nothing. Yeah. But like if we're going to do that as our main route, we're going to have to build a lot more shaft furnaces. Right. So then next option direct electrification. My favorite. Yes. There's a few (laughs) different ways to do this. The one that's most advanced is something that's called molten oxide electrolysis, which is pretty much what it sounds like. You take your oxide, so you take your iron ore, you heat it up enough to melt it, and then you put a giant electric field across it, and the electric field is strong enough that it pulls apart the iron and the oxygen. This is pretty similar to how we currently make aluminum. So it's not crazy. It's a, a thing that should be able to be made to work. It's a pre-commercial technology, though. It's like it's not ready for prime time yet. There's some companies that are working on it. It might be ready soon. Are we to a, a demonstration project yet? Like, is it happening somewhere? Um, mm, mm, uh, give it a year, <laughs> and there may be something exciting to announce. Right. And that is the cheapest form of direct electrification or the most practical or are there other? That's the one that's closest to being ready to do. Got it. Um, There are other people who, you know, people are also thinking about are there low temperature forms of electrolysis that you can do like without having to melt the iron oxide first and things like that. But the one that I just described is the most mature and it's, and so biggest advantage of the hydrogen route is that it is the closest, it is the smallest increment of technology to get us to truly green steel. The biggest advantage of uh, the direct electrification route is that it will require the least energy. So if you are using green hydrogen, so you're taking electricity and converting that into hydrogen, and then using that hydrogen to convert your iron ore into iron, you lose a lot of energy in that extra conversion. If you can just use the electricity directly, you get to keep another third of the energy, basically. Right, right. That's another familiar story. And the amount of energy that's involved is enormous. This industry uses, you know, a similar amount of global energy to its portion of global greenhouse gases, which is like 7 or 8%. Wild. So if you were building a steel industry from scratch as some sort of uh, omnipotent creator, you would go with the direct electrification process and build up from there. But I mean, if I knew it would work. (laughs) Well, 
presumably if you were omnipotent, you could make it work, I guess. But so none of these except <laughs> none of these except for carbon capture then seem to address actually existing blast furnace steel production facilities. Yeah. And this is incredibly important for the politics of this, because in the steel industry, like in a lot of these industries, the facilities that we have today, the reason that they were built in the places that they were built is because they had the best access to raw materials and energy. Mm. That's why we, you know, why did we put the steel mill there? Because we could get metallurgical coal to that place really cheaply. And also, like a lot of these industries, most of the production is done at a relatively small number of very large facilities. I've visited a lot of steel mills over the years, and it's not unusual for a steel mill to have 10,000 employees. Wow. I think the biggest one I've ever, I ever went to had 48,000 employees at one <laughs> facility. It's like the size of a city. Good Lord. Yeah. So these are not things that you can move around easily then is the, is the point there. Like switching geographies is not, I'm guessing, not a practical I mean, it's short-term just, it's, solution here. It creates a lot of problems and a lot of social dislocation. Right. Um, the steel industry might not be a huge part of the total U.S. economy today, but for this, the communities and even the states that are hosting these facilities, like one facility is a really important part of your employment. Right. And so people will fight really, really hard to keep these facilities, you know, because they're so concentrated. And that means that the local community is so dependent on them. Mm-hmm. And if you're moving from a coal-based po- process to an electricity-based process, well, frankly, the places that have the best access to metallurgical coal are not typically the same as the places right. that have the best access to cheap electricity. Mm-hmm. So CCS is something you can offer these communities and these facilities to say you don't have to change anything fundamentally. You don't have to move. You can continue to exist here and just bolt this thing onto your facility. Yeah, you can potentially maintain existing industrial economies, but it's not easy. So one of the reasons why CCS is tough in the steel industry is that at one of these big, what are called integrated steel mills, these are kind of the traditional type of steel mills that have blast furnaces at them. So at one of these facilities, typically you'll have like three or four really big CO2 sources, like your blast furnace and some of your other major process furnaces and things like that. And those together you have a lot of CO2 coming out in one place. And so you can see how it would be, it could be cost effective to collect it all. But that, all of that together is often only half or maybe 60% of the CO2 that's coming out of the facility overall. Mm. The rest of it is like all these small sources, little process heaters here and there that are distributed by their dozens all over a facility that's the size of a town. And so thinking about how you would collect all of the CO2 from all those distributed sources and do that cost effectively, that's actually really hard. Nothing I'm hearing you saying is justifying any of the green steel hype that I came into this interview riding on a wave of. What, what, well, what, is, what is all the excitement around steel? It sounds to me like where we have no good options, really. I didn't say anything nasty about hydrogen, did I? 
Well, I mean, it's it's going to substitute for that seven percent with the special kind of furnace, right? Which oh, is no, not no, no. nothing. You can use you can do that for everything. So, oh, so hydrogen. The, the point is just that you can't retro like blast for it. You get the same kind of steel out of the shaft furnace versus the blast furnace. It's just that you can't use the blast furnace. You can't use hydrogen with the blast furnace. Right, but blast furnaces are most of the furnaces, right? So yeah, what do so you? We, so most of them are going to have to be retired. In fact, all of them are going to have to be retired. <laughs> yeah, that does. That sounds like a, a brutal social and political process. I I'm not going to claim that it will be uh, straightforward, but like we do have 30 years. <laughs> Industrial equipment doesn't typically last longer than that. Right. So, you know, we, we don't have to do this all at once, but like I have never seen a good idea for how we have a climate safe blast furnace. Right. And so, you know, look, we are in a process of closing most, if not all of the cold fired electricity stations around the world. And we all kind of accept that this type of industrial equipment, this particular coal fired type of furnace is just not consistent with a climate-safe future. And that is also true of blast furnaces. So insofar as there's a sort of elevator pitch <laughs> um, answer in steel, it is shutting down blast furnaces and building new facilities that either can work with hydrogen shaft furnaces or are some directly electrified process that we don't quite have worked out yet. Yeah, we're getting close though. Yeah, but so uh, I think that's I think that's probably how it's going to go, and you know there are some really interesting reports that came out just in the last few months looking at pathways to steel decarbonization, and there's like a bunch of different methodologies and different approaches, and several different organizations that have all done this kind of analysis over the course of the last year, and all of them basically come to the same conclusion, which is like no new blast furnaces <laughs> and we're going to have to start shutting down the blast furnaces we have in pretty short order. But that also sounds expensive. Like I'm guessing these new less standardized and commodified processes are more expensive. Yes. Like what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of Delta are we talking about here? So this is a great question and there are two answers that I would like to give to it. So the first is, yes, we do expect that green steel and other green commodities will be more expensive than existing dirty means of producing them. And depending on who you ask and depending on exactly which process you're talking about, those price premiums range from 20% up to 200%. And so the first thing I would say is like, that's okay. We pay for environmental performance all the time. Like cars with catalytic converters are more expensive than cars without catalytic converters. We still think it's a good idea to put catalytic converters in our cars. But if you're telling a country that's emerging out of poverty that it's going to be 200% more expensive for them to do so, <laughs> that's, that's not small. That's not nothing. This leads me to the second point that I was going to make about these prices, which is that, uh, so steel, like cement, like commodity chemicals, these are incredibly valuable industries. Right. The whole rest of the economy relies on the material that these industries produce. 
However, they are, from an economic perspective, extremely low-value-added industries. Mm. They have very tight margins. These are your classic commodity industries. And so the cost of these materials represents a very small part of the cost of the finished goods that are made out of them. I see. And so from the perspective of the guy who owns the steel mill, sometimes a girl, but it's usually a guy, (laughs) um, from the perspective of the guy who owns the steel mill, or frankly, the guy who owns the chemical plant or the cement kiln, uh, he's like, I have, you know, commodity sized margins here. There is no room in my margin to pay for decarbonization for any kind of decarbonization. Unless costs rise for all of them at once, right? Which is always the challenge. Yeah, so I would encourage you, however, to kind of look at this through the other end of the telescope. Don't look from the perspective of the guy who owns the steel mill. Look at it from the perspective of the person who's buying a car, for example. Buying a product that's made out of steel. So even at a relatively high additional cost for decarbonization, that's only going to add, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks to the cost of your car. Mm-hmm. Average new car in the United States costs $37,000. $37,200? That looks a lot more manageable. So I'm sure it's the same for a suspension bridge or whatever, a couple decimals Absolutely. on the end. And this must have political economy consequences too, right? Like if the steel mill owners can't get the car buyers on their side to rebel against this, just like how much power do they have on their own to politically resist these sort of things? Yeah. So the real political problem here and the economic, like the real economic problem here is not how do we afford to pay for decarbonization? Like it's totally affordable. Mm -hmm. We can a hundred percent, we can afford to pay for decarbonization of steel and all of these other industries. The problem is not that. The problem is how do we pass the costs efficiently through the supply chain so that the place they land, which is to say the final consumer, is the place like that's the person in the supply chain who can actually afford to pay. Right. And they're more dispersed the more you pass them down the chain too, right? The less concentrated on any one constituency that might rebel against it. Yeah. And so... Like I said, the, the kind of the policy challenge here is about how do you pass those costs through? And so ways that you can do that are things like product standards. You know, why do we have catalytic converters in our car? In a practical sense, it's because you're not allowed to buy a car that doesn't have one. Right. <laughs> um, so if you, if you want to make sure that the costs of decarbonization get passed all the way through the supply chain, well, one way to do that is to have standards that require that products do that, that products use clean materials. Right. And of course, government procurement always a huge piece of this too. Government can start that process. Yeah. The government can start by applying the standards to itself. That's basically like end users voluntarily taking on the costs, (laughs) right? I don't think there's anything voluntary about my catalytic converter. (laughs) Right. Well, let's say... uh, uh, policymakers deliberately choosing to put the costs on the final user so that it's less concentrated, so that the steel mill owners are all sort of equally affected. None of them are sort of like being priced out relative to the others. Yeah. To be philosophical for a second, 
Oh, please. Like there's only two pots of money in society. There are consumer dollars and there are taxpayer dollars. That's it. Right. All dollars at bottom are in one of those two pots. And so the question is, what ratio of consumer dollars to taxpayer dollars do we wish to use? And that is going to change depending on circumstances. But that's the question. Right. So that helps me on steel then, although it's slightly uh, dimmed my enthusiasm, but I th- more realistic view perhaps of steel. Let's try to get through submit a little a, a little quicker because with steel, we did a lot of general stuff that applies also here, I think. So it's true. And I don't want to like, I don't want to give you the impression that somehow nothing's happening on steel. Like the, the Swedes are quite, a, they have a project called Hybrid, which is a hydrogen redu- reduction steel project, which is the most advanced in the world. They recently announced that they have one of their mining vehicles that they made entirely out of green steel. <laughs> now, it's only one vehicle. It is the first vehicle <laughs> in the history of the world to be made out of green steel. But let me tell you, the difference between one vehicle and two vehicles yeah, is a lot right. smaller than the distance between zero vehicles and one vehicle. Right. And that distance keeps getting smaller over time. Like, we're making real progress. We're not there yet. It's definitely at an earlier stage than our colleagues who are working on power or transportation. Right. But like, we're making progress. So with with cement, what is the raw material and what is the basic processing? Yeah, so the raw material is limestone, the main constituent of limestone. So limestone is a very common kind of rock. You can find it pretty much in any country. Um, And the main constituent of limestone is something called calcium carbonate. The main ingredient in cement is something called calcium oxide. You can hear right in the words, there is carbon in the limestone, there is no carbon in the cement. And so what we are doing is you dig up the rocks and you cook them at 1500 C, so like 2600 Fahrenheit, roughly, and you get about 40% of your greenhouse gas emissions which come from burning fuel to get your rocks that hot. And then the other 60% of your greenhouse gases on average is that carbon that was in the rock and you're just burning it off. So the carbon is coming right out of the rocks. Those, as we were talking about previously, that carbon coming right out of the rocks, that is your process emissions. Right. And once again, I think it's fairly easy to imagine the energy coming from a different low-carbon source. So it's easy enough to envision how to get that chunk. Again, the problem comes down to process emissions. So when the carbon comes off the limestone and is released, is there some way of capturing it? Is there some way of doing this without releasing the carbon? What What are our sort of green cement options? So I think that like even if we decide that we don't want to use CCS, in any other part of our economy, I think the place that we are most likely to end up relying on CCS as our primary decarbonization pathway is in the cement industry. Interesting. And now does it produce, like you mentioned with the steel mill, you know, there's little sources all over the place. In cement, is it concentrated enough of a sort of source that you can get most of it? A cement kiln is a much simpler place than a steel mill. (laughs) So we were talking about 
uh, steel mills with 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 employees. Right. If you go to a cement kiln, typical number of guys on shift, maybe 25. <laughs> yeah. So basically, you just have one big pipe in a cement kiln. And so CCS is a lot more straightforward there. People do have ideas for alternative raw materials or alternative cement chemistries uh, that might be able to address this process emissions problem without CCS. But I think it's probably going to be CCS. And part of that is kind of my assessment of what the technical alternatives are. But an even much more important reason why I say that is that uh, so cement and the thing we like to make out of it, which is concrete, like I, you know, I, I, I referred to all of these materials as like foundational to our economy. Concrete is just like foundational to our buildings. <laughs> yeah, literally. Um, it is literally the thing we make foundations out of. Um, almost every structure in our society relies on concrete. And the type of cement that we use, which is called ordinary Portland cement, it was first patented in 1824. So we're coming up on its 200 year anniversary. Right. We got a pretty good handle on how it behaves. Yeah, we have, this is a material that we feel very comfortable with. We know its material properties really well. And for obvious reasons, the construction industry is incredibly risk averse <laughs> about the structural <laughs> properties of the things that it's building. And, and, and so even if you have great ideas for alternative cement chemistries, the likelihood that we would that 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 the global construction industry would feel comfortable shifting over to them in 30 years time wholesale <laughs> for everything <laughs> right that's a pretty tall order is there even a i mean is there a, like i can't imagine the sort of process you would have to go through to demonstrate that your concrete would hold up buildings in every conceivable situation? Like, I, is there even yeah. a formalized process like, or some sort of certification, or would you have to build that out of scratch too? I mean, so we do have like performance-based standards for concretes, and we have ways that we test concrete, uh, different types of concrete. And I don't want to say that there's nothing to be done here. So the, the main ingredient in cement is something called clinker, and we already use a big range of different clinker factors. So that's just the percentage of clinker in different cements around the world. And so most, almost all the CO2 comes from making the clinker. A lot of cement is 95% clinker, but it's also very common to use 65% clinker cements. Mm -hmm. And so you can cut 30% off your greenhouse gas emissions by using low clinker cements and those things are already technically mature, well-demonstrated. There's big structures made out of them that you can go and visit around the world. And so like we, there's an opportunity to make at least 30% greenhouse gas emissions reductions on average just by going to the lowest clinker factor that's appropriate for whatever use you're using. Mm -hmm. So like we should do that. There's no technical right. barrier. It usually is cheaper. So like we should do it tomorrow. There's no reason not to. But that gets you a 30% emissions reduction. That still leaves you with 70%. What about bucket one using less? Uh, uh, steel, I sort of, I guess, are vaguely familiar with alternatives too. But is there a practical way to use a lot less cement? Oh my God, we are so wasteful in the way that we use concrete. Mm. It is wild. 
it is really wild how we waste concrete. So let me let me give you all right. So I'll give you a statistic and an anecdote to illustrate this. First of all, for a statistic, people have gone out and they've looked at commercial and multifamily residential buildings. Almost all of the studies that I've seen have been in Europe or the United States. So it's mostly in high-income countries that these numbers come from. We think the situation is probably even worse in developing countries. But they take actual buildings and they look at how much structural material, primarily concrete, are these buildings using compared to how much structural material would be needed to support all the loads. Mm. And they typically find that there is something in the neighborhood of twice as much structural material as is needed. (laughs) But I I would think that those kind of things would be very strictly governed by code. Are they not? No, it's much more... Oh, no, no, no. I'm, twice as much structural material as is required to comply with the very safety restrictive oh. building codes, safety protective building codes. What? But why? Yeah. So <laughs> then we get to my anecdote. So I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. For a commercial or multifamily construction site in this area, certainly it's more expensive here than in other parts of the country, but it's not like, you know, it's not radically different. Mm-hmm. So depending on the size of the building, the typical payroll for one of these construction sites might be five or $10,000 an hour. Hmm. Uh, One of those mixer trucks full of concrete, we're not talking about fancy concrete here, just like dead normal commodity concrete. To get one of those mixer trucks of concrete delivered to your construction site, that's like $1,000. So if you can save five or 10 minutes of time on your job site, by wasting a truck full of concrete, you just saved money. Oh. This goes back to what I was saying about looking through the other end of the telescope. Like, why would you use materials efficiently when they are so cheap? Right. For private construction here in the United States, the average amount of a construction project that is represented by the cost of the cement is less than half a percent. So cement is so cheap then that basically people just overuse it to save time, to save, you know, soft costs. To save anything. Everything is more expensive than cement. (laughs) Right. Or here's another crazy fact that kind of brings this point home for a lot of people. So if you take uh, an 18-wheeler and you fill it up to the statutory maximum weight for driving on an interstate highway in the United States it will have approximately $2,600 worth of cement in it. (laughs) It will have one nice laptop worth of cement. So this then, not to be uh, one of those guys, but this does seem like an area where markets could work well, right? Like you just want to put a higher price signal on it and then trust people to figure out how to eliminate some of it. Is that right? I think of it like it's a good news, bad news situation, right? Because let's say, so because cement and all of these materials, because they are so cheap, it is very hard to persuade people to use them efficiently. It is very hard to persuade people to value them in terms of the actual value that they provide to your lives. I guess it's a little bit like water or electricity that way. Um, However, because they're so cheap, the good news is that even if the green version is a little bit more expensive, 
or even a lot more expensive than the dirty version, that doesn't actually make the products that these materials are made out of more expensive. Right. So if we go back to this, if we go back to this commercial building I was talking about, 0.5% of its costs are cement. So let's say we just mandate like dumb end of pipe CCS, like the most expensive, worst engineering option that we can think of for our cement decarbonization. We involve only very lazy engineers in our project. Uh, Even under that circumstance, okay, so maybe we'll double the cost of the cement. That only adds 0.5% to the cost of the building. Got it. In fact, it it offers it it adds less than zero point five percent to the cost of the building because all of the construction costs that I've been citing don't include the cost of the land, which is often the most expensive thing. Right. So then, what I take from that is that I was precisely wrong. It's probably going to be difficult to put a pure price signal high enough to make the market work, but you can get away with mandates because it's not going to affect voters, consumers much. Yeah. This is part of what I was saying earlier about like these industries, they're incredibly valuable, but because they're low value added, they don't compared to the rest of the economy, compared to the prices that consumers actually face, like these materials are not typically an important line item. Right. Right. That makes it, that makes it just politically makes things (laughs) a lot easier. Well, let's touch on chemicals real quick. I, I, I know it's a varied category. Are there simple things to say about why chemical processing produces so much greenhouse gases, or does it vary a lot also? Sure. Well, so like I said, with chemicals, so the chemical industry is very diverse. Um, I remember a couple of years ago talking to a colleague who was like a senior sustainability person at BASF, the German chemical giant. And she told me that BASF has an 80-20 problem when it comes to their greenhouse gases. So BASF makes 100,000 products, approximately. 80% of their greenhouse gases come from not 20% of their products, come from 20 products. (laughs) (laughs) And That's like the 99-1 problem, a a different problem. Yeah. Um, it's actually 998 too. <laughs> <laughs> to be technically, technically yes. specific. <laughs> it's, and so, uh, and those, those are these, again, they're like the basic materials that are the ingredients for all their other products. And it's mostly fertilizer and plastic. Um, so fertilizer is, um, you know, is primarily, we're talking about nitrogen fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And so making that cleanly, is mostly about making hydrogen cleanly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some kind of, people do have some ideas for how to make nitrogen fertilizer that's not made out of ammonia. But the main idea is like, if you want to make clean ammonia, you just need to start with clean hydrogen. Um, so if you if you solve the, the green hydrogen problem, then you downstream solve the fertilizer yeah. problem, basically, greenhouse gas-wise? Like there's not a there's not a whole lot to making fertilizer besides making hydrogen. That's convenient. Uh, yeah. Plastics, I assume, are more difficult. Yeah, with plastics, you have a, you again you have the same buckets of solutions we were talking about earlier. So you have you know we could use less 
And definitely we should. Right, um, right. We have, plastics are interesting because plastics are carbon-based molecules that they're made out of. It's a carbon-based material. And so when we make plastics out of fossil fuels, some of the fossil fuels are burned to provide energy, but actually more than half of the fossil fuels that we use in plastics production, we're actually taking the carbon atoms and the hydrogen atoms that are in the fossil fuels, and we're putting them into the plastic product. So we're making the product out of the fossil fuels. So every piece of plastic is, in some sense, carbon sequestration. You know, Shell says that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I take it back. I mean, does it, but, but does it release the carbon when it breaks down? That's, so, okay. There is a scenario in which if you collected all the plastic at the end of its life and you made sure that it was clean and dry and well segregated and you put it in like a nicely lined hole in the ground, it would be inert in that hole for a very long time. And right. so maybe Effectively you could call forever, that right? carbon storage. <laughs> right. But that's not actually what we do with plastic at the end of its life. <laughs> Right. And the way that we actually treat plastic at the end of its life leads to a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. Well, what what do we do? Do we burn it? What do we or some just, of it we burn, which is like that's just like, gross. you know, just making that's like burning fossil fuels directly. Right. Um and that's a very popular option around the world. Um here in the United States we do less burning. Mostly what we do is that we just put it into mixed garbage. And so when you have plastic and organic material mixed together in your garbage, Mm. the organic material, you know, food waste, whatever, it will decompose anaerobically. And so all the carbon atoms that were in that organic material will then leak out as methane instead of as carbon dioxide. And that methane, depending on the timeline you're looking at, is somewhere between 30 and 85 times Mm -hmm. more potent of a greenhouse gas than the CO2 that you would get if you like properly composted your organics. Right. So even though, even if the plastic itself, even if the carbon atoms in the plastic are not decomposing quickly and turning into CO2, they are leading to methane emissions from trash, which are an important source of overall greenhouse gas emissions. Right. So it seems like here... Bucket one is the lowest hanging fruit by far. Like we're so wasteful. Yeah. Plastic's so gross and overused. Yeah. And in the United States, the EPA only estimates that eight or 9% of plastic is even collected for recycling. <sighs> and of that, only about half is actually recycled in any form at all. Right. Um, and the recycling process that happens is almost always basically like you have a, a wide variety of mixed plastic and you melt it down. And when you just like lumped all of these different materials together, you get very, very low quality plastic. Downcycling is yeah, mostly what happens. Radically right? downcycling. And so most of the plastics we use in theory are infinitely recyclable. Like if you have a high purity waste stream, Right. Then you can just melt it down and get new first quality products that are just like the old ones. But we don't actually do that. 
<laughs> and so, and so, for example, like you know, we both need to use less plastic, but we also need to have tight regulations on exactly what types of plastic can be used, so that there are only a few types of plastics out there, and all plastic packaging is the same couple of types of plastic, and so they can be easily segregated and meaningfully recycled. So we can change the way we design plastic products and the, and the types of plastic we make to encourage more recycling. But uh, obviously, you're never going to get to zero that way. So is there a way to avoid bucket two? Is there some, <laughs> or are we stuck with CCS here? Or, yeah, I mean, or... or are bioplastics more like are bioplastics real? Are there real alternatives of, on the horizon to to carbon plastic? So bioplastics are a thing; they are real. I occasionally will encounter, you know, a PLA fork or something like that. Um, <laughs> they're not a meaningful portion of current plastic production. And as we were talking about before, like there's just not a biomass to go around to. Sigh. to make large quantities of plastic out of biomass. So that's going to be a niche item forever. Okay. So another idea that people have is, can we take carbon atoms out of CO2 and turn them into plastic? Mm. So that is a thing that we can do. It requires an eye-watering amount of energy. <laughs> like... So you have to remember this, and this is like, this is important for carbon utilization conversations generally. If you imagine, like we started with these big, exciting, highly energy dense fossil fuel molecules. (laughs) We had a combustion reaction where we took out all of the energy that was stored in those molecules. And what we were left with was CO2, which was a combustion product. It's what's left over after you take out all of the energy. And so if you want to turn it back into one of these big, exciting molecules, you have to put more energy back Mm. in than you got out in the first place from burning it. Mm. Awkward. So the chemicals industry is the most energy-consuming industry of any industry in the world. Oh, wow. It's only the third most greenhouse gas emitting because a lot of that energy is stored in the product doesn't go directly into CO2. So a couple of years back, the big like pan-European chemicals industry trade association published this really fantastic report where they were like, okay, you guys want us to decarbonize. Let's get serious about what that actually would mean. Let's go through one process at a time and talk about like the energy and feedstock requirements for the green alternatives in every case. And what they found was that basically to produce the basket of chemicals that they were currently producing would require something, and to do it using CO2 as their primary source of carbon, would require something like 1,900 terawatt hours per year of clean (laughs) electricity. And the IEA estimates that in their Paris compliance scenario in 2050, the total amount of electricity that is generated and used for all purposes on the continent of Europe is only like 3,400 terawatt hours per year. 
So more than half of all the electricity would have to go to the chemicals industry if you wanted to make all of your carbon-based chemicals out of CO2. So it can be done, but like we are really in too cheap to meter territory with our electricity if we're doing that. I mean, none of those sound like good options. <laughs> what's, your, <laughs> what's, your, what's your favorite for plastics? Is, is it just a mix of nibbling it's around just, the edges? It's or? Like it's really got to be using less. It's mm. like material efficiency is really our, like we, right. I have not, I have seen no scenarios where you can get meaningful, like you can get 1.5 or even 2C consistent reductions in emissions from the chemicals industry without dramatically reducing the amount of plastic that we use and dramatically increasing the quantity and quality of recycled plastic. Interesting. And is there, I mean, this might not be anything, but is there any, you know, you mentioned when it comes to steel, there's this sort of, when you're developing as a country, there's lots of these sort of big one time basically yeah uses and then your usage tails off is there an arc for plastics do you use more as you develop or less really it's just, just up random and up and up and up. <laughs> there's no uh we've not saturated nope. no no one it's, no one's it is saturated. really so um since 2015 so in the last five years or so uh the rate at which total plastic, total global plastic production is increasing, has stopped accelerating. That's, I guess that's good news. Yeah. So the, so the problem is not getting worse faster. It's just getting worse at the same very rapid rate that it was previously getting worse at, which is, that's the nicest thing I can say about, about the trend for plastic volume for plastic production volumes. So then that's so helpful. Having gone through these big categories, I've already kept you a, a long time, but I do want to at least touch on uh, some policy options at the end here. It sounds like if we're looking big picture at industry decarbonizing by 2030, it sounds like the stickiest wicket, the most difficult area is plastics. It sounds like the others, at least we have a vague sense of what we're doing and how to get there but plastics maybe not. Is that roughly accurate or do you think they're all difficult? <laughs> um, I I don't like to think of any of them as difficult. I, I find that framing both unhelpful and inaccurate because I think that, you know, we were talking at the beginning of this conversation about how, you know, people just started noticing the importance of the industrial sector like a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so I often tell people that kind of like where we are in our industry, in our decarbonization progress in these sectors is kind of similar to maybe like where the power sector was in the late 90s. Right. I mean, I don't know. I was a kid then, but I'm assuming that in the 90s, people who were like out there trying to get solar panels installed and being called a silly hippie, like <laughs> I bet that. The, the concept of completely decarbonizing the power sector probably felt pretty hard to them. <laughs> Today, we have like 20 or 25 years of progress that we've made since then. And so we sort of feel like, okay, like it's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen by itself, but we have a, we've got a line of sight to where we're going. We kind of see how it's going to happen. 
Right. Now the conventional wisdom is the electricity is the easy part. It's the other ones that are that are hard. Yeah. So I think like the the situation in the industrial sector is not that it's somehow harder, like an inherent sense. It's right. that we're just at a much earlier stage in our decarbonization journey. Well, we kind of waited a long time to get started, though. I mean, we do have to go faster in it than we did in electricity, that arguably. That is true. We did take our sweet time to get started. <laughs> so do you see, um, y- you know, you're, you're sort of closely in touch with political and policy angles on this. Do you see attention and urgency around this commensurate with a, the scale, and B, the speed necessary to do it? I mean, obviously not. Yes. I'm sorry. That like, answer is no on, in every sector on every question. question to ask, David. <laughs> we're doing exactly right. Like, we're perfectly on track. Even the parts of the climate challenge that we're doing the best at, we're not on track. Right. And this is not one of the parts that we are doing the best at. Yes. Um, like, it is very clear to me that what we need to do to decarbonize these industries is entirely within our capacities. It is within our capacities here in the United States. It is also within our capacities globally. And I don't want to, don't, please don't interpret what I'm saying as any disrespect to the efforts of the Biden administration. The people who are doing this work in the Biden administration are very, very clear about what the scale of the challenge is, mm-hmm. and they are attempting to move as fast as they possibly can. In America's famously responsive and agile uh, political system. Yeah, but I think they would probably be the first people to tell you, like, no, what we're doing is not enough. <laughs> right, right, right. So then, well, let's look at what we are doing then, because we had a bunch of executive actions there early on. We had the Recovery Act. Then we got the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. Are there big pieces of good policy on this that have already been passed? And secondly, are there good pieces of policy on this in Build Back Better that we, like everyone else, are sitting around waiting forever for action on? Okay. So the biggest thing that was in the bipartisan infrastructure framework. I guess we should call it a law now. The bipartisan infrastructure law. Yeah. Um, it did pass. Is like a serious pile of money for commercializing and demonstrating clean industrial technologies. It seems good. Most of that is going through the Department of Energy. And so the way that the money was allocated is pretty flexible. And so, you know, the DOE currently has a lot of discretion about exactly how they spend that money. And there's a few different pots of it. So it's hard for me to give you a dollar amount that will go to the industrial sector, but it will be somewhere in the neighborhood of between a half a billion dollars and a few billion dollars. So that's like a serious amount of money. And it does sound like in some of these markets or submarkets, we are at that sort of point where a visibly successful demonstration project could like be triggering, like yeah, could, no, you know, it's a thing we need really things. badly. And it's a thing that absolutely requires public money. Right. Like there's a certain amount of technology risk that the private sector in these industries in particular is simply not going to pay for. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, 
And what about Build Back Better? Is there some pot of gold at the end of that? Yeah, so there's uh, a much yeah. larger pot of money in Build Back Better. So we go from a minimum amount of industrial decarbonization demonstration projects of a half a billion currently up to a minimum amount of $4 billion if Build Back Ooh. Better gets passed. And then the upper limit, depending on how you count it, goes up commensurately. So the other important thing that I was going to call out is so the federal, so Biden issued an executive order last month on federal sustainability, which included for the first time direct instructions for the federal government to buy low GHG building materials, read steel and cement, when it builds stuff with federal money. And that's that's a very big customer, right? Like that's yeah. not a small thing. So that thing that we call that that sort of the family of policies where the government buys low GHG building materials, we call that buy clean. If you look across all levels of government, so federal, state, and local, almost half of all the cement in the United States is purchased with taxpayer dollars. No kidding. Yeah. Again, look at a runway or a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> or a highway overpass. Infrastructure, and you, you're right? like, oh yeah, there's a lot of concrete that's getting poured with my tax dollars. So in other words, by clean government policy could do a lot. Yeah. If it's well-structured and aggressively implemented, it could make a huge difference. And so Build Back Better, in addition to this demonstration stuff, has a bunch of money in it to facilitate the implementation of by clean. Mm, at the federal level or helping states too or cities? I mean, presumably any government at any level could, yeah. could do a little bit of this. So there's a lot of like, there's a lot of spillover benefits. So if the federal government says we're going to do this, that makes it much cheaper and much easier for state and local governments to do it, even without direct federal subsidies. And the reason for that is that like the federal government has to put in place the uh, like measuring and reporting frameworks for what is the GHG intensity of different products. They have to make sure that the low carbon products are available wherever federal construction is happening. They have to sort of like all of the fixed costs of getting the system up and, and running can be accepted by the federal government. Right. All of which makes like the next participant yeah. much easier, like all of which makes it easier for the next person to do it. There's also a bunch of exciting stuff that's happening at the state level. So California was the first state to buy pass a buy clean law. But since then, like five other states have passed buy clean laws of one type or another. Are these, are these mostly cement and steel we're talking about? Yeah. The specific set of materials that's covered varies from state to state. Some states it's cement only. Some states, it's steel, mm. cement, and other things. In California, unfortunately, it's everything except cement. Huh. Is there... Why? Because the a, cement it, industry had good lobbyists. Oh, funny. I guess that's the obvious answer. Yeah. That's that's just what happened. <laughs> We're working on it. Uh, and, and this is like one of those situations where you can envision sort of like, you know, fuel economy standards, enough states joined California in pushing out ahead that eventually the industry just said, good Lord, we need a single federal standard and agreed to hire standards. Is this the sort of thing where you feel like if enough states get in on this, they're eventually going to, to force a sea change? Yeah. In some ways, these are concepts that need to be proved out. And so if you can have a state policy that leads to 
you know, widespread use of comparatively very low GHG building materials, then it becomes a lot easier for the EPA to start regulating related issues. Right. And so, you know, it is, um, the the goal here is to create a virtuous circle of greenhouse gas ambition. So on one side, you have investment, uh, you know, for demonstration projects and just and just setting up these systems. On the other side, you have for sort of demand pull, you have the buy clean. Are there other big ticket policy items that that are, have not yet been tackled that you would cite? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is like on the investment side, there's a lot of different ways to structure that. So you can do you can do credit subsidies. You can do direct subsidies. So you're not subsidizing loans. You're just giving subsidies. You can also do direct federal investment, which we have done a lot of in years past. And in fact, the Defense Production Act allows us to do an almost unlimited amount of. Interesting. (laughs) If we wanted to. And so there's a lot of good arguments to be made for direct federal investment in clean production. So I think all of those things are really important. I think there's also some really important governance issues. So a lot of these industries have both the industries and the markets have had pretty poor enforcement of existing regulations, both around non-greenhouse gas pollution and around uh, labor standards and things like that. And I think that we have some pretty good rules on the books for a lot of this stuff that are very poorly enforced. And so if we, you know, if we want the energy transition and the clean transition across the economy to be sustainable politically, we have to be showing people real benefits, direct benefits in their lives, their family's health and things like that. So I think that has to be an important part of this conversation. And then also in the governance bucket, the United States is very bad at industrial policy. And the reason for that... That wasn't always true, was no, it? I no, feel- it was not always true. But for the last 40 years or so, we've had this weird fantasy that we don't do industrial policy. Thanks, Ronald Reagan. Yeah, we we definitely do industrial policy. <laughs> yes. but, but it's just sort of incoherent and easy to be captured by the covered industries. Buried in the tax code yeah, where no one Yeah, because we're like it. pretending that we're not doing it. Yes. And one of the consequences of this is that like we have entirely hollowed out the expertise and the sort of governance infrastructure of industrial policy, particularly at the federal level in the United States. Like there's hardly anybody whose job it is to think about these things in the federal government (laughs) compared to other countries, compared to places whose manufacturing sectors we would like to emulate. Right. Well, you you go look at like Germany. I mean, never mind even like China. Just go look at like Germany. It's all very explicit. It's right up front. They're very clear about what they want to do and how they're going to do it. It's just, it's so much more sensible. And they spend a lot of money on it. Like, so the the main kind of applied R&D in the manufacturing sector that's from the German government is a system of of things called the Fraunhofer Institutes. Yes, I'm familiar. Uh, those yeah, amazing. They spend almost 3 billion euros a year on the Fraunhofer Institutes. 
And get so much more back, though, don't you? The closest, like, they're like the the analogous thing in the U.S. government is the Advanced Manufacturing Office, which has an annual budget of four hundred million dollars. <laughs> and our economy is five times larger than Germany's. Yeah, yeah. So compared to the overall size of our economy, we are spending like less than five percent of what they are spending on applied R and D. And that's the piece of industrial policy that we feel most comfortable with. Yeah. That cuts across, I think, uh, uh, greenhouse gas reductions in, in every sector, right? I mean, just yeah, we need to figure out how to – it's like we're, we're setting these goals, these targets, right? We constantly talk about goals and targets, but just the capacity to do things on purpose with our economy, right? We just have, has been hollowed out. Yeah. And I think – this is particularly true in the manufacturing sectors. Right. And, and is that largely because we exported so much of it, just because we don't do a ton of it anymore? I might do, I might make the causal relationship go in the other direction. Mm, right. That like one of the reasons why we had a lot of deindustrialization was that we didn't have a concerted effort to maintain a vibrant industrial economy. Like Germany still has most of its steel mills. Right. If anything, we deliberately accelerated uh, the reverse process yeah. with, with trade deals and stuff like that. That's seems like a long-term <laughs> project rebuilding, reversing that, that process. Yeah. And an important part of that is rebuilding our governance capacity. Like it blows my mind that the highest ranking person in the federal government whose job it is to think about the future of the U.S. manufacturing sector, which is to say the office, the head of the office of the advanced manufacturing office at DOE, that person has the rank of office director. <laughs> like there isn't a single assistant secretary anywhere in any department on this, on this beat. Like that is wild. There's 20 million Americans who are employed in this sector. I know, I know. Well, final question then, the final piece I wanted to look at is the sort of international piece, the trade piece. Like presumably either we or other countries are going to start using trade deals as an instrument of decarbonization in industry. Is that a, is that a thing yet? Is that where the thing we're trying to do or a thing people are talking about? Yeah, it is. So um, late last year, around the same time as the big climate meeting that happened in Scotland, uh, the U.S. and EU made an announcement about how they are working together to figure out how you may recall that Donald Trump, when he was president, put tariffs on steel and aluminum just sort of because he felt like it. <laughs> um, and so they, the U.S. and EU have agreed to work on a deal to like transform those tariffs into something that is mutual and that is linked to greenhouse gases. Ah. So there's definitely a lot of work happening in this space. I think we have not yet settled on what are the what are the best policy tools to promote decarbonization. You know, some people think that like for solar panels, some people say, well, we should have free trade in solar panels so that there's cheap solar panels and everybody can have the cheapest possible clean electricity. Other people say, no, if we want to decarbonize, we should have high tariffs on solar panels so that Every so that countries can have employment and manufacturing and broader social benefits, which will make the whole country more supportive of solar power. I, I find both 
those wildly contradictory arguments compelling? Where does that leave me? Yeah. So, but like the, the point is, I think we still have a lot of work to do to figure out what a truly climate safe vision for trade policy is. Right. There's, there's a relatively narrow set of policies that are like traditional trade policies. And we're actually, in most cases, like things like tariffs. Hmm. That's often less important than sort of what are the international reverberations? What are the trade consequences of purely domestic policies like subsidies, like procurement policies, things like that? Right. So in terms of sort of stimulating global movement toward industrial decarbonization, our biggest tools are probably still domestic, just doing it as fast as we can yeah, and and making those products cheaper, rationalizing the industries, stuff like that, probably going to be a bigger deal than any tariffs we put on. Well, and like, honestly, my attitude is usually like our goal for the the trade policy is not that the trade policy itself will promote decarbonization, but that the trade pol- we can put in place trade policies that will prevent international trade from undermining our purely domestic policies. Right, right, right. So we can, you know, so different countries can like really push their industries to decarbonize faster without having to worry that dirty production from overseas will just flood into the market. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I asked before this conversation (laughs) on Twitter if people had questions and as usual, they had a thousand, which made me think we needed to do 10 podcasts. But one of the sort of recurrent questions was, insofar as you're putting pressure on industry to do these things, how do you prevent industry from just moving or or just shifting production from just shifting? This is, right, this is a legendary problem. Yeah. You need international coordination, I guess, right? Yeah. But this is one of the reasons why things like procurement policy are so fantastic, because that when you're when the regulation is on the product, not on the facility, there's no incentive to move the facility. Right, right. Those demand pulls. So the the kind of the dem- the the market side, the market creation policies allow you to kind of sidestep some of these really difficult questions. And I will just to I, I will say like people talk a lot about how businesses hate regulations. Businesses don't hate regulations. Businesses hate regulations that they have to comply with, but their competitors don't. Right. Right. That's the thing they hate. Insofar as you're approaching this from the demand side, you're you're basically small C Catholic towards the producers. You're not, yeah. you're not benefiting one producer over another. If you do it right. If you do it right. Uh, well, I really cannot thank you enough for taking all this time. I, it's <laughs> We took out... It's a big chunk of stuff to cover, and I feel uh, like personally I know 10 times more about it now than I did when we started. So I really appreciate you taking all the time, and, and maybe um, someday we'll talk again. We'll drill down uh, a little deeper into one of these many, many rabbit holes that we tripped so lightly over in this conversation. But thank you for taking the time. It's, it was awesome. It's my pleasure. Uh, really, I'm really, really impressed by any of your listeners who have made it this far. <laughs> uh, so I would like to well, thank them. Well, whoever's out there listening, yeah, you're the hardcore. We love you yeah. the most. Thank you for making it this far. And I would I would be more than happy to talk about 
some of this stuff in greater detail in the future. As you can probably tell, talking about this stuff is one of my favorite things to do. Oh, it's so fun. All right. Well, thanks so much, Rebecca. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.